Welcome to the Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. Modern data leaders know creating a data-informed culture requires cross-functional partnership and collaboration across the entire business. IT by themselves can't do it, nor can individual business departments. Both the IT and business strategy must be in lockstep to achieve results. On this episode of The Data Chief, Dora Busius, Senior Director of Data Strategy and Architecture at Stryker, discusses the role of modern data executives, three keys to creating a data-informed culture, and her approach to breaking down silos based on her own 28 years of experience building effective data strategies across industries. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. Dora, welcome to the Data Chief. Thank you, Cindy. I'm so happy to be here and honored to be here. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I'm excited to have you on. And I'm even more excited because you're going to help us travel. Uh, we're going to travel vicariously through you. So tell us the beautiful place that you're joining us from today. Oh, I'm in sunny Florida today. I um, I actually for three years up in the tri-state New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area. But about two and a half years ago or so, I moved to greater Tampa area and I'm really enjoying the sunshine. Yes, I love the beaches in St. Petersburg yes. um, or that whole uh, coast, clear water beach, beautiful, just outside Tampa. And I understand you just got back from your first cruise. Is that right? <laughs> I did. I did. For the first time ever, I took some time off earlier in the year. I don't typically do that. And I went on my first cruise ever. And I have to say it was such great time. I went with family. Um, I was really impressed with the engineering of these boats. I was impressed with the program. I will definitely do it again. And it just reminded me how important it is for all of us working. Sometimes some of us are workaholics. So it just reminded me as well how important it is to just take time and enjoy you know, take a mental break from the day to day from work and just uh, try to integrate and balance life and work a little bit better. So it was great. Thank you for asking. Oh, definitely. So what was your favorite place or thing that you saw on the cruise? Well, I tell you, I'll I'll give you this one. I actually uh, took yoga classes uh, in the morning. And the wonderful thing was that the yoga studio, one of the walls was all glass windows. So trying to balance in a moving ship, the ship, other than one night, it was good. But just trying to balance, it was great. Just looking outside as I'm doing whatever, the salutations and all of that, just to see the ocean, to see the Atlantic. And and it was eight o'clock in the morning. The sun was bright. So that was that was a great spot for me. That, and I'll give you one more, because I had this moment that just hit me being on this boat. I was actually at some point sitting on grass on the 15th deck, watching an outdoor movie on a big screen monitor. And it hit me that I'm sitting on grass on a boat in the middle of the Atlantic, which was a little bit of a 
yeah, moment for me. <laughs> and it was a great place to be. Yeah, that is in- <laughs> that is incredible. And I do think the yoga with the sea behind you or in front of you sounds beautiful, but I'm picturing that rocking boat and there's a running joke okay. in my family that when I die, they're all going to a tattoo parlor and then going on a cruise because I get seasick. So I can't do <laughs> Well, thankfully, actually, except for one evening, thankfully, the boat wasn't really rocking. It only happened one evening. It, was, it wasn't bad. I was impressed. Oh, good, good. Well, so Dorit, now you're the chief data officer of Stryker, whose uh, headquarters is based in Michigan. So you are embracing this work from anywhere world. Tell us a little bit about Stryker and your role there. Okay. So my title actually is Senior Director of Data Strategy and Architecture. There is no CDO formal role at Stryker. Obviously, so much of what I do matches what we could think of as a CDO, although, as you know better than me too, Cindy, there is no one definition for that across the industries and the organizations. Stryker is a wonderful organization. It's We're in healthcare, leader in medical device, medical technology, uh, 18 plus, $18.4 billion revenues. We just announced it a couple of weeks ago, our 2022 results. Uh, and what I really appreciate about Stryker is how serious we are about making healthcare better for the patients, working with our customers. And on the internal, internally, I really love how much attention Stryker gives to designing, manufacturing the best quality products and the way we go about it, the culture. There is huge effort in terms of the culture of how we work with each other. And for me, that makes Stryker a remarkable company. I am fortunate to be working for Stryker. Although I do want to say here today, and everything we speak about is on behalf of myself, not on behalf of Stryker, just for clarity. Uh, that being said, wonderful, wonderful organization. Yeah, no, that's good. And I do, um, I, I I wish I could find out from my aunt. So I know Stryker makes a lot of medical devices, hip and knee replacements. I'm like, do you know which brand you have in your knee? She didn't know. So thank you for that great work. And you've moved a la- around a lot across different industries. So insurance, financial services, now medical devices. Tell us a little bit about how that has shaped your approach to data strategy and analytics. I think it's actually benefited me. You know, there's pros and cons to everything. The the pro and how this benefited me is because, well, I spent almost 10 years, nine years with G Capital, G fin- the financial arm of G. So in the data space, data strategy, because of regulations after the 2008 uh, financial crisis, we had to figure things out. That is not something that healthcare or even other verticals had to do. So me coming into healthcare, having bringing that expertise uh, from a different vertical that is further ahead, I think, in generalized speaking, it's definitely beneficial. What it also helped me understand is that, you know, the functional side of things might be a little bit different, but when it comes to data strategy, when it comes to how do we get the most value out of our data, the best practices, the how we go about it, I think it's pretty pretty much the same. It's a common thread. We can apply it into one industry versus the other industry. We just want to make sure that we do understand the functional 
side of things of the organization that we are in, and we are making it as we're implementing data strategy best practices, we're making it very relevant to the organization that we're in. So I think having seen the different challenges across the industries has helped me. Now, the challenge with not staying in one vertical, obviously, is that I really had to get very creative creative to come up to speed very quickly to learn the new industry, to learn about medical devices or to learn about derivatives and asset liability management or to learn about insurance products or retail early in my career. All in all, I think I am fortunate that I've had the opportunity to do that. And um, I'm a learner naturally by default, so that actually helps me learn new things and and, uh, keep applying it. Yeah, thank you. So there's a couple things there. One, your comment on making a general statement is one industry financial services further ahead than Mm -hmm. healthcare. I actually can say they are. Looking at the maturity models and benchmarking, they are, which to a certain extent, it breaks my heart (laughs) because what good is anything without good healthcare. And yet I almost feel that the pandemic has been a forcing function to some in the healthcare industry to innovate. So maybe that's the silver Mm -hmm. lining that we will address some things. And every country is different. So I'm I'm talking about the US. There's other countries um, that have invested more in healthcare data and analytics specifically The second point you made, though, is about you use the word relevance Mm -hmm. and business value. And it's been interesting. You are very active on social media, um, as am I. And some people are saying like, wow, everyone in data is now talking about business value finally. And I'm like, I don't think it's finally. I do think it's more it's a huge mistake not to. So do you see this as a shift and a maturation or is it that the penny has only just dropped for some people? I think it's a combination of both, actually. I mean, it's not finally. I think the people that have been in it that are well-informed and have practiced it, have lived it through, I think they absolutely learned the hard way, perhaps, realize that it has to become relevant to the business or it will not sustain. It will not really be successful. Unfortunately, not everybody has, it has not resonated with everyone. So is it a shift? Is it the penny just dropped for some people right now? It's a positive thing. And I hope more and more people realize this. I am so happy to see that there is more buzz about it. Typically, there's a lot of buzz about the technology. And this is one of the, I've spoken about this, right? One of those pitfalls when we think that data strategy is talking about this technology or that architecture approach and how it compares with a different architecture approach. And we forget that data strategy is about how we are helping our business go forward. And to your point, it has to be relevant. So I want to say something about that because this is something that I've actually witnessed when I've seen folks in the pa- in the past moving from another company, coming in the role of a not a CDO but you know a, a senior role in data and analytics, and try to implement it exactly how they had done in the other organization, it doesn't work. There's common practices that we need to bring in. There is strong domain expertise. There is leadership behaviors 
and people and culture organizational change management aspects, along with the core technical and data domain aspects that we need to bring to the table. But again, it, it's not a boilerplate that I just take it from here, take it to the other organization, it happens. So the connection to the people in that organization, the connection to the actual business goals, business objectives, the business challenges of the organization, and that's how we make it relevant, in my mind, that's the secret to this being successful. If we don't get people that we work with to work yeah. together and understand that there's something in it for them and get them to engage in this journey of implementing a data strategy, it's not a theoretical thing. And it's not a, I'm going to implement new technology. It has to have a purpose. And that purpose is, you know, what is my mission as a company? What, what are my goals as a company? So how do I tangibly relate to that? The better job we do at that, the more successful in my experience, in my humble opinion, that we implement the, the data strategy. Yeah. So, uh, Dora, I'm kind of chuckling here because I, I actually think when you and I first met, we were debating things like virtualization, <laughs> data fabric versus data mesh. And, and we've never actually spoken about this side of data strategy. And, and I so agree. I would say that um, too many data leaders make the mistake of thinking a technical strategy is really their data strategy. And you used the word that there's something in it for mm -hmm. them. And I call that WIFM, what's in it mm -hmm. for me, the, the business mission statement, as well as the person whose, whose job or processes you're impacting, you have to connect those. So let's hope that more leaders embrace this concept of the data strategy has to be very much aligned to the business strategy. The third point you had brought, brought up a few minutes ago, though, is the continuous learning. Yes. And I think given that you have changed industries and, and given the churn that we have in this data leader role, whatever title you want to call it, what was your approach to learning this new industry? Was it just talking to people time or are there spe specific resources that you relied on? So the approach has changed a little bit over my career different, because if I think back to my career, 28 years, and I've been in IT all 28 years, and really I've played every role I can think of in IT from data to software to ma management, program management, all of that. It has changed a little bit where I might go a little bit more in the weeds earlier on. But right now, I think the most effective way for me has been to be curious, to ask questions, to understand, to talk, to talk the business pain point. I, I you know, the technical stuff and how we do it, I might get in technical conversations with technical people. But I mean, in order for me to come up to speed, it's really figuring out, well, who is who in my organization? What are the challenges that we're trying to solve? And really trying to build that rapport and that and build the credibility with those folks, but build that rapport. And I do that by, by listening and trying to understand what are the day-to-day -day challenges. And I might be looking at it from a data. And by the way, when I say data, in my mind, it's data within business context. It's not the bits and the bytes. You know, it's data that has the business yeah. context around it. And along with that, very, very tied with that, for me, I'm thinking of it within business process. And I'm also thinking of it in an end-to-end -end 
perspective. Because otherwise, what I've seen is we're we're missing some things. And again, that's that's another pitfall if we forget to look at the end-to-end uh, picture. So I'm always listening, and that helps me ask better questions. So that's how I come up to speed because I know exactly what is the point and what is the problem. The problem could be with technology, could be with broken processes and operational procedures, could be with data. So I don't just go and ask, tell me what is your data problem. I'm trying to understand the holistic challenge. And I typically ask about challenges, but I also ask about what's working well. And also just taking the time to just reflect on that, connect the dots, try to put the map together across the organization, especially because my role for the past two thirds of my career has had some kind of an enterprise, you know, global level, enterprise level visibility or accountability. So in my role, it is important too to not be thinking silo and to always keep on driving that mindset of we have to balance this. We have to balance the very localized, very silo mentality with what at the enterprise level uh, uh, we might need and, and how do we get the best of both worlds and drive some synergies. So not only trying to understand when I'm speaking to different stakeholders, what the challenges or what's going, working well, but then taking the time, taking a step back and building the map in my head, reflecting on it. Okay, how does this all work? What, what is the end-to-end business process here? Um, what can I learn from that? Because it could be something upstream that if we fix it here, it actually makes an impact and helps someone downstream somebody else's problem. Yeah. So I'm picturing some of our listeners who grew up on the business side and are very comfortable asking these types of questions. And then on the the other end of the spectrum, we have some people who have come up through technology and they're a little bit more anxious or shy of asking these questions. Nobody likes to feel stupid. So how do we overcome that? Well, that was a big lesson learned for me, actually, Cindy. Because early on in my career, I think 20, 25 years ago, I was shy of asking questions. And I'm naturally very curious. I love asking questions. But I would also always feel, you know, I would make the assumption that everybody else knew better than me. And that if I asked the question, I would just come across as naive, stupid, you know, to use the term, I don't know. Turns out what I've learned over the years is that when we make assumptions, my assumption that other people knew better was not always accurate. It's So I'm not the only one that's afraid to ask the question. So having that in mind, I started then asking the questions. And when I realized, and the more I started seeing this, the more comfortable I became with just opening up. And right now I ask the question, even if it sounds dumb, because I know 10 out of 10, pretty much. I I know that if I ask the question that everybody's afraid to ask, the conversation is going to start because people make the assumption that everybody understands things the same way, or even just understands what we're talking about. And that's not the case. So throughout my career, I've seen so many examples and I had to learn it the, the hard way. And I think practice does good, you know, start little by little. I think being authentic with the questions, coming from a place of really, I'm trying to understand and help. I'm not asking questions to show off that I know about this thing or that thing. I'm not trying to, you know, somehow put something else in there. I'm really trying to quite authentically, quite frankly, understand what it is that we're doing here 
and how do we work together? And um, what ends up happening is that the simpler the question to, the simplest the way we talk about it, the more people open up and we realize, oh, wow, there's so much more here. And we don't really have a common understanding. And that's really hindering our progress. So that's what I do. Practice, I would say, does, does better. And I've learned over the years, I'll say this too, over the years I've learned that doing that, it's actually helping me meet my goal. Because my goal usually is, okay, around data strategy and implementation of that, how do I keep making progress? Well, me actually, even showing vulnerability, you know, or even just asking what might seem as a dumb question, doing that, I know it's actually going, it's a stepping stone to keep on making that progress. So I'm a very goal-oriented person. So I'll do that and it's okay. And right now, you know, like I said, sometimes I do that just to encourage other people to ask questions as well. Because nine out of 10 times, 10 out of 10 times, there's value to this. Yeah, for sure. I think of another data leader that we had on the Data Chief podcast from Unilever, and she only recently realized that one of her secret skills, most important skills, is being an active listener. So I think that's a skill we should all embrace. When you were also talking about how when data leaders come into a new organization, they like to use the template that they used before, and it might not work because there's the people Mm -hmm. change that we have to account for. And in 2022, I wrote that a top 10 trend, or maybe it was top seven in 2022, was CDOs who have a people change management champion on their team would have a bigger Mm -hmm. impact. What do you think of this? And do you have one on your team? I think it's brilliant. And to be honest, it's something that I talk about with my team all the time. It's not a formal role, a formal one person that does that, but we're very intentional about it. And we, um, you know, in my team, I try to coach the team and just bring more of that mindset. And again, I'm fortunate, uh, we're fortunate to be part of an organization that understands how important culture is and skills like that about communication and active listening. And so that actually helps as well, because you have the entire organization behind it investing in this area. I think it's a brilliant idea, and I think it's it's uh, instrumental in, in this working well. Yeah, I was so tickled when Gartner published their emerging roles in data I and saw analytics. That. <laughs> and I, I think they called it, yeah, a change coach or something like that. They used a slightly different term, but um, I just like that we're all paying more attention to the needs of this um, rather than just thinking, it's easy. It's not easy. We have to change mindsets and processes and cultures. And um, on that point, Randy Bean, who from New Vantage Partners, author of Fail Fast, Learn Faster, he publishes his annual survey. It's now part of Wavestone. And still, we are so stuck here. So the latest data, only 24% of companies that he surveyed describe themselves as data-driven. And less, only 21% say that they have developed a data culture. Do you interpret this as such bad news as I do? I would say yes. What's wrong with us? I don't know. <laughs> you know... 
I I think some of it has to do, uh, well, a couple of things. I think some of it has to do with how hard change is. I mean, we're wired, we've been wired, we've been used differently all these years. We have a whole long history behind us, right, where we we weren't thinking. Data is always an afterthought, number one. And secondly, using data to actually drive or inform decisions, because I believe in being data-informed as well, not just data-driven. And I... I, I actually have an example that I had to you the data could just not drive the decision. It could drive it up to a point, but then other data points had to come into place to to make a decision. But anyway, to your point, I don't know what it's so hard, probably because we're just being wired to think of data as an afterthought and to even how we work together. I think that's an afterthought as well. We've also been very siloed. So I think that has something to do with it too. Because a lot of what we're talking to be data-driven, I think behind the scenes aspects of that is, hey, we have to speak some common language as well. Either it's a KPI. I mean, I've been part of organizations that sales had been defined differently. So how do you report on sales for the enterprise when every division has a different definition for sales. Sales is a great example because sales, a salesperson will consider it um, when the order is booked and they get their commission. Accounting might consider it, depending if you're cash basis or accrual basis, it's when the invoice has been issued. So um, of course we have different definitions here. And, And this really gets to data literacy, that common language. It does from that perspective, yeah, the common language. But then when I think of the data itself, right, uh, I'm thinking now of the enterprise master data. Uh, I've been in conversations where we're talking about the same thing and we don't know it because we're thinking of it, we have different terms in our head, right? And we're thinking, or we are talking same terms, but we're thinking something totally different. To me, that inhibits us actually Uh, being effective and efficient in what we're trying to do. And so to be data-driven, there's the aspects of getting people to work together, to understand, to take actually the time to understand, are we speaking the same language so that we can set things up the right way from the beginning? Because usually what happens if we don't do that, we build things and then we go back and we start putting band-aids because we realize we just did not have a clear understanding from the beginning. So in my mind, those are some of the reasons why it's so hard and change is hard. Yeah. So you've kind of given us already, let's say, three ingredients to create that data-driven or data-informed culture, break down the silos, develop a common language or clarify when um, there are inconsistencies, address that people change management, what else specifically do you recommend? I would also say, make sure it's very relevant to where we're trying to go, what we're trying to do from a business perspective. And I think the other aspect, and it's it has to do with the people, but I just want to highlight this. It's the cross-functional partnership and collaboration. IT by themselves is not going to do it. Business by themselves is not going to do it. And different business divisions by themselves are not going to do it. So if we have a chief data office or officer, you know, the analytics, data and analytics people, I would say it is just so important that we make sure, and that's what it means in my mind, that IT strategy needs to work together with the business strategy. Make sure we understand what we're trying to go as a business. And that means that starting from high up all the way through the layers organization, we have common goals, which means that 
from the different functional teams, from operational teams to commercial teams to data teams to technology teams, that we are having those common goals, which means we have to learn to work with each other. That has to do a little bit with breaking the silos again, but sometimes we take it for granted what it means to break the silos. So I just want to really highlight how important that working across with peers, working across in the organization, how important that is. Coordinating and marching towards common goals. Oh, coordinating and orchestrating, by the way, it's yeah. another one because we might have common goals, but if we don't orchestrate and coordinate these things, again, that could be inefficient for how we go about it and just throw other wrenches in the mix. Yeah, a lot will optimize for the department or for the function, and that contributes to the silos rather than optimizing for the common goals. How much do you think this culture change of creating a, a more data-fluent culture can be driven from a grassroots approach, or is it really leadership walking the talk and leading by example? I think it's both. I think if you only go grassroots, it's only going to go so far. I think if it's leadership, but failing to get throughout the organization, the ripple effect of getting people engaged and being part of it, in my mind, the ideal situation is where you know, you bring that together. There are very good proven best practices that we know how to go about it. We spoke about some of the things that can help about it that I think absolutely need to be driven uh, from top down. That executive understanding and support, active support, it's fundamental in order for this to be a sustainable, sustained, long-term successful uh, journey. But at the same time, it doesn't stop there. It takes a very intentional effort to make sure that the masses, so to speak, whatever role the people are in across the divisions and the functions, that they're part of this. They're engaged. They understand why they need to be part of this. Do they even have measurable goals about this? Because that's another thing. We have to incentivize people. This is not a one person or a one team uh, situation. I, I think... Because it's such a big change from how we've been wired traditionally to really get to be data-driven, data-informed, and really change that culture. So it's just part of how we do it. And we don't have to put so much effort into even creating data literacy work streams, right? It's a big, huge change. So there is many different layers. And the bigger the organization, obviously, uh, the harder it is. So to your question, Cindy, I think it's both are important. The top is critical. It has to be both. Yeah, yeah. And as you as you mentioned incentives, I'm thinking of a conversation I had with a data leader who they were trying to drive self-service analytics, but what they were measured on was how many dashboards their core team created. And so he said to me, Cindy, if I do my job right, I really have um, failed on the current OKRs that were set mm -hmm. for uh, his team. Um, so we have these conflicting mm -hmm. incentives. I think the other thing, Dora, I'm going to play um, devil's advocate here okay. a little bit. Some would say, well, we cannot be data-driven because the data is not comprehensive enough, fast enough, or at a green relevant enough for us. So we have to rely on our intuition 
because the data is not actionable enough. So do we have this little bit chicken and the egg situation? Well, I think that's the whole idea behind part of the data strategy, right, is that we get the data at a state that we can trust it and we can rely on it and we can find it when we need it. I mean, if I think about a data maturity model for data and analytics, that's part of it. Right. So and and then we can get to the point that that data can inform our decisions. And I want to elaborate a little bit, you know, because we I'm not sure that we're all thinking of it the same. What data driven, what data informing is at least to me how I'm thinking of it. The intuition to me, that is a data point. So when the data itself, hardcore data is not enough to clearly tell me. And like I said, I had a situation like that this last year can just not clearly tell me go left or go right. This is where this additional intuition, additional data points, experience intuition can come in and just be the differentiating factor. But we're missing the boat, I think, if we just base everything on experience and intuition, because we've seen that the data speaks volumes. That being said, to your point, we have to make sure that it's good data that we can rely on and we can get it. And that's part of the maturity model. That's part of implementing a successful data strategy. Otherwise, garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, you referred to this situation where the data alone wasn't enough. Can you share more? Can you take us through an example, a specific example? It was comparing a couple of different technologies. Let me just say this. And the data alone just could not, just looking at everything, the entire comparison, a very comprehensive list of the different capabilities, functional, technical, and other things, other criteria that we're looking at. It was such a close race that we had to also incorporate other data points that we couldn't measure with very hard facts, right? And that's what I'm referring to without getting too particular about it. No, that's fine. We don't want you to get in trouble revealing (laughs) (laughs) confidential information, but I do think it, it's the data plus the experience or the machine plus the human is the best combination. Yes. And I know there's so many people that are talking about it out there too. And thank you for bringing that up. I agree with you, you know, that the two have to work together. It's not one or the other. Yeah, it's both. Well, Dora, as a leader in our industry and as one person of which there's only 27% female leaders at this level, according to the latest survey from Tom Davenport and AWS. And maybe I should take the glass half full or less than one third full. 27%? Is is that good? Is that not good? Well, I mean, I, I don't have the, the figures on top of my head, but we know that when we have diverse thought and we're bringing in that diversity in the organization, in the leadership positions, gender, you know, bringing more women in leadership positions and in general diversity. I think the numbers speaks from themselves, even though I don't remember them off the top of my head. I think it's not good. I think we have a whole lot more work to do. We need just that diverse thinking. We need both. We need more women in leadership positions. Yeah. So what do we Mm -hmm. have to do to encourage, inspire, mentor, attract more diverse professionals to our field and help them get into leadership positions? 
I think organizations have a role to play in this, to really educate, raise awareness. There is many biases that might be unconscious bias biases on this topic as well. So I think organizations have a significant role to play here with educating and creating opportunities for women. I think at the same time, and I'm going to generalize, but look, I'm a woman. Like I said, 20, 25 years ago in my career, I was so shy to ask a question. I don't know if that's specific to women or specific to men, but I mean, there are other studies out there that they have all these different stereotypes. And I would say if gender ever becomes a thought in everyone's mind that, oh, I can't do this because of my gender, please, please acknowledge it, but put it aside and keep on going. I mean, I would say look for role models. Uh, maybe there's not that many, but look for role models. There is a number of people that I that I mentor or that I that I coach sometimes, and I sometimes say, you know, we're the captain of our own ship. We you steer your ship, so don't let gender, even if that feels uncomfortable, stop you. Take the accountability ourselves to keep on moving forward. If there is no role model, look for one. If there isn't one, carve the path. You be the role model to open the road for others. On a personal accountability level, I would say that. It's generally known out there and there's books written on it that um, when we feel comfortable, when we get past our comfort zone is when we grow, when we learn. It's always a benefit coming out of it. New opportunities come out of it. We grow. So I would say even if it feels uncomfortable, go for it. Don't let gender stop you. Carve the path if what path is not there. But hold our organizations accountable on it too. So I give it both sides, organizations and personal accountability to make this better. Yeah. So I think um, that it's both in our own mindsets as well as in our co-workers and companies' mindsets is uh, a good approach, a, a way of breaking it down. We also have pay gaps in our field. And you once shared with me a story hmm. about this. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Sure. This is a story from very, very early on. My very f- first few years in my career, this was in the 90s. So I was part of this team and I asked for a raise because I thought I deserved it. And I went to my manager and I said, I think it's fair because here's, I actually went with some specific data points uh, comparison, you know, what the industry was doing, other people and all of that. I said, I think I deserve a raise here. I'm doing the work. You just gave me all this much more work to do. I just got out of the mainframe team into this rad, rapid, rapid application development team. I am bringing in all this, like I'm staying up late at night, teaching myself these new technologies to bring it in, to teach everybody else. And yet I'm underpaid. And it, it's actually so funny because I... Happened to have some data points too, where I was underpaid compared with other folks that happened to be men. I was a woman, but anyway, I asked yeah. for it, and um, my manager's manager did not like this. My manager said no, and I said, "Why not?" And he said, "Well, his manager did not like it." And um, I said, "Okay." So I went and asked. I said, "I'd like to understand why not." So this person actually said to me, "I want to talk to you." This was not even in the office. He says, "Let's go." Outside in the backyard, there was this bench there. So here we are. I'm in my mid-20s, and I have this director-level person look at me and say, yeah, no, you're not getting a raise. And I said, can you help me understand why not? I mean, here's the data points. 
And I will never forget this, Cindy. He looked at me and he said, when you talk to me, I'm here. You're there. You better watch how you talk to me. (laughs) So I said, okay. I felt insulted. I felt, I guess in today's terms, you would call that bullying, whatever you would call it. Either way, I said earlier that sometimes I say to folks that I work with, be the captain of your own ship, steer your ship. And that's what I did. I said, okay. I said, this is not an organization I want to be part of in my mind, not someone that I want to work with. So I went and over the next two weeks, I had four interviews and I got multiple offers and I accepted, I resigned. I accepted a different job at a different organization. And I think I mentioned it to you too. I ended up raising my my entire compensation package a lot more. It was better benefits in this new organization, a better job as well. And my base actually raised more, a lot more than what I was asking for a raise from this other organization. So this was an intimidating moment. But if there's anything to take away from this, as uncomfortable as that was for me to say, Hey, I don't agree. I mean, I don't understand. Let me let me understand why this is happening. And as uncomfortable as it was to have someone tell me, I'm here, you're there, I did something about it. Mm-hmm. Dort, thank you so much for sharing that story with everyone so publicly. And I think you followed all the best practices. You asked, you brought data as part of your ask. You did it in a non-threatening way. Help me understand. And really, it was that manager's reaction that was all wrong about it. And so then you you did the last best practice. It's it's time to move on. Know when to make a move. Yes. And someone once asked me, what is the best and worst advice you ever got? To me, that was the worst advice. The I'm here, you're there, which it's so vivid. It was a defining moment. Um, yeah, I, I work the exact opposite way. And I think through the years now and where we are, and I think we see it more and more in organizations, I think it's important for all of us to understand that when we respect each other, regardless of title, right? When we're just trying to work together, respecting what everybody has to bring to the table and just build that important credibility, I think we can get, we can go so much further together, so much faster, so much more effectively regardless of all of these hierarchies and everything, because that's what that was. That was somebody trying to tell me, you're in a hierarchy and you're pretty low. And okay, they're lost, basically. Yeah, for sure. They're lost and their insecurities and their insecurities. So Dora, let's do a, a hard pivot okay. and go to some fun lightning round okay. <laughs> questions. Um, favorite activity when you're not working with data? I love to spend as much time as I can with my kids. So I love cooking it out with my kids. I don't get to do that as much anymore. My kids are in college right now. So when my kids are around, it could be cooking together. It could be watching a movie together. It could be just spending time together. And if they're not around, um, just getting some quiet time. It could be going on a walk, listening to a podcast, just, just getting some quiet time. Yeah. So favorite food to cook. So I like to cook a lot. I cook a lot in the Mediterranean or Greek cuisine. I'm Greek descent. Um, I love making this avo lemon soup. My, my kids love as well, which is, it's a soup with chicken, lemon, egg, 
and rice as the main ingredients. It's really good. And uh, what about favorite song that pumps you up after a rough week or a rough day? Well, there are great songs because I listen to Green Music a lot, but I'll tell you this from English based. You can share that. We have global we listeners. We do have global listeners. Well, I don't know is that it pumps me up, but it's a song that for those that know, I, I love to Agalma, they'll know, but I'll tell you what pumps me really uh, pumps me up. Whenever it comes on the radio or whatever, I like the uh, uh, Black Eyed Peas, basically. Uh, the one that says, I got a feeling. That's that's a pretty cool song that always gets me yeah, just yeah. in a happy mood. Yeah, I like that. Fill in the blank. Data is... The lifeblood of the organization. Any particular mentors or books or podcasts that you, it's your go-to? So I'm embarrassed to say this. I have such, uh, I cannot retain author names or book titles. I mean, obviously I know some, but so I've been listening so much of the Data Chief and I want to congratulate you, Cindy and the team. Thank you. No, seriously, (laughs) great, great program. I do listen to the Data Chief in terms of podcasts. It's not just one, though. I listen to several. I listen to that. I listen to the Catalan Cocktails. I listen to George Freakin's Lights and Data Show. He's putting so much content out there. Um, books, I can tell you, obviously, I'm, I'm reading I'm reading a lot online. So it's not just a book. Usually I have two or three books. That takes me forever to finish them because I, I yeah. read... A lot online, a lot of articles I always read, but I'll give you a book from many years ago that I think had a defining impact for me. And it has to do with my thinking Antoine. And this was a book, it's all, but it's called The Goal. It was about the theory of constraints and that kind of like really stuck with Uh. me and understanding helped me drive. This is why I've done a lot with data and I've done a lot with enterprise architecture and I always talk about the end-to-end process, the end-to-end flows, and realizing that when I do something here, it most definitely will have some impact downstream, even if that's outside of the scope of what we're doing here, because we're so project rather than product-minded, yeah. right? So I think that book had a big impact on me. The goal. Thank you. One last question you can choose, depending on your mood in okay. the moment, Either what are you most grateful for a little bit beyond the unexpected right now or something that has totally made you laugh out loud recently? I'm grateful to be here. I'm grateful to be alive. I am a glass half full. I'm grateful to be where I am in my life and something more tangible, more specific. I'm so grateful that I decided and I went and I took that cruise and I hope everybody takes time to just decompress a little bit and then we get back into the work. So there's so much to be grateful for other than obviously the health, the kids, all of that, but just grateful, reminding myself to just take the moment to appreciate the little things in life. Let me put it that way. Appreciate the little things in life, reminding myself I'm grateful for that. So well said, Dora. We'll continue the conversation maybe on a beach outside yes. Tampa. Thanks for being on the data team. There you go. Clear water is not far from here. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been, uh, it's been so much fun. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. 
If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.